0: Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation with Sean Burkle, who wears an extraordinary number of hats as climatologist at the University of Maine's Climate Change Institute and as the Maine State Climatologist. Sean has presented at a number of different Maine Science Festival events and was one of the experts for the Warming Sea Project. I've had the good fortune of knowing Sean for years, and I really enjoyed learning more about his work and how long he has been interested in science. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sean, welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. Um, I am delighted to have you for a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which you have one of the coolest titles I've ever run across, which is Maine State Climatologist. But before we get deep into your research, I was hoping you could give us some background into how you got into climate science because I think it's fair to say you're old enough that it wasn't uh, a given as an immediate thing to do when you were probably interested in science.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Kate, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here talking with you. My path to becoming a climate scientist in the mainstay State climatologist is a bit winding. Well, let's start back to when I was five or six. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'll keep this brief. In short, I knew very early on that I absolutely loved science, and what really brought me in, there are two things that brought me in to wanting to become a scientist. The first was when I got a telescope as a kid. I was either five or six, and I just became absolutely enthralled and just uh, dazzled by, by how many stars there were and trying to comprehend the universe and playing, or not playing, but using the, the telescope and seeing how looking at one section of the sky, I just saw more stars and learning about the planets in the solar system and how vast. And learning about the vastness of space. I, I was absolutely fascinated by that. And I can remember this was around the time that Halley's Comet was making passing. I think that was probably 1985 or 86. And so this would have been a couple of years in the lead up to that, because I can remember that had not uh, occurred, but there was build buildup to People were really excited in the anticipation because there had been such a, such an impressive showing earlier in the century. And so, along with the telescope, My parents, uh, for Christmas, they they got me um, a a couple astronomy books and one of them had a big expose on the appearance of Halley's Comet and then talking about the anticipation of the next showing, which uh, turned out to not be that spectacular, (laughs) uh, which was very unfortunate, very disappointing. But around that same time, so when I was entering my kindergarten, first grade, I also started to become interested in dinosaurs was given a dinosaur book. Those two experiences cemented my interest in science in general, but also my interest in deep time, trying to understand the vastness of the universe, space, but also of time. And that always stayed with me. And as I progressed through school, uh, science was always my favorite class. I always enjoyed the scientific method, asking questions, seeking answers, and and learning. Throughout high school and certainly into college, I, I knew I I wanted to be a scientist. Originally I wanted to be an astronomer. Again, going back to the first telescope that I that I got. So when I was trying to choose a major for college, I was really torn because also by that time I had developed an interest in computers. And I took a couple programming classes in high school, basic in Pascal, which um, I think that. The high schoolers today would probably snicker at that. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was torn between, well, do I go into computer science? Do I want to be a coder? Because I also was playing a lot of video, video games in high school. Or do I go into try to pursue astronomy? In which case, I'd have to major in physics. And I've always been an average math student. And so the prospect of having to be a physics major first was pretty intimidating. Uh, but that's what I chose. And after two weeks, I withdrew from the program took a year off because I realized, I mean, over my head, I'm an average math student, but I felt as though it was that particular program was too much for me. And I had to reassess. And then I thought about the computer science part, but it was the, uh, the physical sciences that I was really interested in. In lieu of not being able to, or, or deciding not to pursue astronomy, I thought, well, earth science. Because there's the concept of deep time, and there's paleontology, and maybe I can study about dinosaurs or just about Earth history. Now, climate was not on my radar at that time. This is the mid to late 1990s, and I I knew about climate change. Or, I mean, in the media, is typically referred to as global warming. And so I I certainly knew about it, and it was something I, I had some concern about it. But I, as you know, the, our level of concern was much less 25 years ago than it is now, because now the, the impacts of climate change have become so much more apparent. But we'll, we'll touch upon that in a few moments. Um, and I, I was also thinking about biology, because I'm, I'm interested in biology as well. Well, I ended up choosing geology um, or earth sciences, And the deciding factor was really the concept of deep time, because I've just always been so fascinated with that. When I reentered the university program, this was at the University of Maine, I really felt as though I made the right decision, because I really enjoyed the the geology courses. And um, I think it was by about junior year, that's when I started taking courses that related to climate. In particular, I took a, a course on ice ages with, uh, it was taught by Al Borns, who, he, he passed away early last year. Over the years, I worked with Hal on projects. He was my uh, capstone project advisor when I was an undergraduate student and I'd been in the field with him and gone on field trips with him. So Hal taking his, his class was one of those, um, one of those moments that steered me in a certain direction. Also, Around the same time, or actually sophomore year, I met George Denton, who is still a professor at the university, and he's a geomorphologist, paleoclimatologist, and actually it was George who steered me towards Hal's class. He said, I I think you should take this class. He said, I think you would find it really interesting, and um, so it was per his suggestion. And so in taking Hal's class, under the guidance of uh, George Denton, who was my undergraduate Advisor for that particular semester, that set me on this course. On this course, to um, want to study climate, and so in graduate school, that's when I started to integrate the skills that I had acquired in high school and also in college in terms of programming. Because I took a couple programming courses in uh, as an undergraduate student in C plus plus, and then as a master's student, I started to work with MATLAB, write code, and also work with uh, James Fastick, who's also a professor at the university who developed the humane ice sheet model. And in working with Jim and also George and also Hal on understanding ice ages and others are many other people involved, can't list everyone. but So in short, it was those early experiences that really during my undergraduate years that where I stepped into the path of climate and understanding past climate in particular, I, because I became fascinated by ice ages and the concept that over what are often considered to be astronomical timescales, timescales for which the, the uh, tilt of, uh, the axial tilt of, of Earth's orbit axis of rotation changes, and also the uh, ellipticity of the Earth's orbit and the obliquity, where these factors change over many thousands of years and um, also integrate over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands thousands of years. So, and again, it goes back to my early interest of trying to understand changes over large timescales. So that really drew me in. And uh, so as a graduate student, I was really focused on paleoclimate, understanding ice ages. I certainly had a concern an appreciation of understanding present and future climate, but my focus wasn't at that time was not there, but, uh, when I became a postdoc and this was also at the, at the climate change Institute at the university of Maine. So I've, I've been here affiliated with, uh, with the Institute and university of Maine, quite a while. It was during that period. And so now we're up to about 2010, 2011. That's when I began focusing on modern climate change and, uh, future prediction using models, really focusing on using climate models as a a tool to understand changes that are happening around us.
0: You grew up in Maine, right? Yes, grew up in Maine. Okay, so the fact that you had programming classes in high school is relatively extraordinary because I know that computer programming is still a reach for a lot of places to teach that to high school kids. So it it sounds like that puts you at a real advantage in kind of sorting out next steps as you merged, you know, when you said space and dinosaurs, those are like the gateway, the gateway, uh, I don't want to say gateway drugs, because, (laughs) (laughs) but the gateway into science for a lot of little kids. And then you figured out how to to rethink that as deep time. But then you also had this programming bit, which that's where I'm going to circle back to. I I think it's really interesting that you had that opportunity to expose you to this idea of merging these two things. I'll let you reminisce about that or think about that, but also if you could then tie it into Climate Reanalyzer, which is just an extraordinary tool that we will be absolutely including a link in the show notes to. Um, It's really, really great use of all this back-end computer stuff to help people visualize what's going on. Have you run into other people who had that opportunity in high school? Well, I, I guess I, I've never asked
1: that specific question. Did you take programming in, in high school? But my sense is that not many people have that experience. And why I took it in high school? The courses were, of course, offered. It was optional. I chose to take them. And I chose that because a few years earlier is when I really got into using computers. As many kids in the 1980s, growing up in the 1980s and early 90s, I started playing a lot of video games. And we had an Atari, and I had friends who had a Nintendo, and I was, oh, Nintendo. But then my one of my best friends, he comes from a large family and um, he had three brothers. Two of his brothers were into computers and had their own, I think one had a Tandy 1000, another had started to build his own computer. And I became fascinated by that. I thought, oh I, I really like to build my own computer. And I think how this worked out was I with my paper route money, I bought the Tandy 1000. So that was my first computer. And then after a few months, I think I started, I bought a, a, a case for, for the computer, bought a motherboard, learned how to put the motherboard in, hook up the power supply, put the memory chips in, uh, the drives. I started doing that probably around 1990. I became a techie, I guess you could say. And because I, I was, I started using BBSs, using the modem to dial up the BBSs and there were a handful in the by about 1993, 1994, there was a pretty decent selection in this general area where you could dial up and log on to a bulletin board service, and you could download games and send messages to people, which I thought was so cool at the time. So it was having that experience that by the time I got to high school and I saw that there were programming courses, I thought, oh, I definitely want to learn to program. So this all eventually worked out that as I went on a path of becoming a scientist researcher, I started using those skills of building computers and programming right along with the work that, that I um, was doing. And and so that is what made possible um, Climate re-analyzer, And the development of that, in a way, was some kind of um, fortunate accident, I guess you could say. It was on a research trip to with collaborators in uh, Cambridge, England at the British Antarctic Survey, Paul Mievsky, the director of the Institute, had arranged the meeting with with uh, collaborators and a couple others of us in, in the Institute were along. And it was as part of that meeting, we were discussing how to make reanalysis models available uh, for our own research purposes within the Institute. And Paul, he, he knew that I that I had programming, uh, a background in programming and he said, would you be able to put together an interface and provide access where we can make maps and, and extract time series from reanalysis? And I thought about it for a moment, I said, yeah, that I, I could certainly put something together. And, and that, that was the start of it. So that was back in, I think the meeting was in late 2011. And then by early 2012, probably March or so, I had the first version of what became Climate Reanalyzer. So initially, it was just mostly our internal use. I mean, there was a website. Anyone could access it, but we hadn't advertised it.
0: When Uh, you say reanalysis in that way, what does that mean?
1: Reanalysis is probably, I think, the easiest way to to understand what reanalysis is. Consider a weather forecast model. We see the weather forecasts either online or on the nightly news. Those come from computer models that are physically based, they solve the fluid dynamics, they, they solve heat transfer in the atmosphere, the motion of the atmosphere, and they can also include motion of oceans and circulation. A reanalysis model provides an estimate of the state of the atmosphere or ocean, there are ocean reanalyses as well, at any given point in time, depending on the record period of the reanalysis model. There's an input, there has to be a, a real world observational input that the reanalysis is based off and that uh, those inputs are surface observations from weather stations around the world, uh, and also uh, weather balloons that collect information uh, throughout the atmosphere column. The National Weather Service all across the country releases weather balloons at at least twice daily, um, in some cases even more frequently, say if there are big storms coming, they need more information. Uh, And of course, there there are networks around the world that do this sort of information. And then also satellites. So in the satellite era, their uh, reanalyses can incorporate satellite measurement, measurements of surface temperature, cloud cover uh, and various other things. And uh, so these, these models typically have either hourly or three hourly outputs. Uh, for example, all the, way back, all the way back to 1979, January 1st and the newest reanalysis products uh, at pretty decent resolution for this type of model which is about 30 kilometers or a quarter of degree go back to now 1950. And of course the interval from 1950 to 1979, or beginning of 79, though that part of the model solution of the estimates would not include satellite information. And so uh, reanalysis models have become a valuable tool for understanding recent historical changes in climate that can then of course be used in uh, present climate studies and also for a basis to try to understand trends Uh, to make comparisons against uh, individual surface observations and also to compare against um, climate models which project into the future. So climate reanalyzer is a play on words with climate reanalysis.
0: Which I'd never totally made that connection before. It's not like weather forecasting, the the reanalyzer, because you're not projecting forward. What you're doing is establishing the information that we know from the past so that people can use that information to figure out what the future may look like. Mostly correct.
1: It's mostly assimilating past data sets, using those as input, and then estimating the state of the atmosphere on a continuous grid, either across a region or worldwide. Most, most of these reanalyses are, are global in scope. They can be used to help us interpret and understand what may happen in the future or to make comparisons, but the reanalyses themselves are a sort of hindcast product. And then the the forecasting component, say if the model is initialized at zero UTC time on a given date, uh, that's when the data, the observations are ingested. And then the model does make a forecast. The the model component of the reanalysis, the atmospheric model will forecast out typically six hours or so, and often in ensemble. And then say the next hour step, the product that's made available is typically an average of that ensemble, but we're really getting into, into the weeds now. Yeah,
0: that's fine. uh, You initially built climate reanalyzer for your in, for the internal research folks, you know, people could go there if they happen to know it, I'm going to guess it didn't have all the different types of data and bits of information that it has right now. Like if, if I went to the website now, I'm betting it, it looks much more. There's a lot more information there than there was to begin with. Number one. absolutely, Yes. Okay. And was this in addition to your other work or did this kind of take over and become your work?
1: This very quickly became fully integrated with, with the work that I, with the research I was doing. And um, because where it's a repository for gridded data sets, reanalysis models, and there's some access to climate projections as well, developing that and in, in writing the scripts to process the large gridded data sets, that's um, all just become very much part of what I do as a researcher. And so when I am involved on projects, analyzing climate of a particular region or variability across the North Atlantic. Um, I either use Climate Reanalyzer directly or I write scripts or modify scripts that I've already written for Reanalyzer and then adapt them to a specific purpose. And that often leads to improvements on Reanalyzer, a new feature. The three pages that the site started out with are the monthly reanalysis pages for producing maps, time series, and correlation, not running correlation maps. Uh, those pages now are vastly improved or they were several years ago, uh, and again, through this process of improving them as I also conduct research, there's a reanalysis model called ERA Interim, that's that was one of the first ones in there. There's also NCEP NCAR reanalysis, that's the original reanalysis that was uh, first published in 1996, it was when one the paper on that model or, or framework reanalyses include a model component, the atmospheric model, but they're really a often referred to as a product. Um, some refer to it as pre-analysis data. I, I prefer to refer to it as a pre-analysis product because it includes the mechanisms for ingesting data and surface observations, and then there's the, the atmospheric or and/or oceanic models that are, are run. So with time, from 2012 onward, I, I just started adding data sets and improving the interface the interfaces. And also very early on, I think by 2013, I really started to think about, well, how, is there a way I could get daily usage, I mean, visitors to come back every day and check out the site. And I started thinking about weather forecasts, weather forecast models, and also about, well, there's a very close relationship between climate and weather. In the most basic definition, climate is average weather. And you can choose what type of climatology is of most interest. Uh, what time period is of most interest is a 30-year climate normal or 100-year climate, climate baseline. But climate is average weather. And so why not have a website that provides access to climate reanalysis and also weather forecasts? And one in which might be able to extract time series for the forecast, see maps from the forecasts, And for the maps in particular, have them in, use the same color schemes as the maps for climate uh, reanalysis. Because then it, it can be a research tool, but also an education tool. Uh, because we can uh, use the graphics on the site and some pages with animation to, to uh, see how the weather changes and to start to see what it looks like when a cold front comes through. And then also to uh, make comparisons between different variables to see the spatial relationships. And then on the same website with the same similar interfaces, take a, a look at the longer timescale, the climate component. So that that's a theme that I have been trying to carry forward since about 2013, and I I thought well it'd be kind of neat to start having these daily depictions of global of uh, global weather, and then the climate linkage could be having the daily temperature anomaly maps, which just shows the where on the Earth today for the one day forecast, where on the Earth are conditions cooler or warmer than than the uh, reanalysis average. And uh, I chose to use the 1979 to 2000 climate baseline period because the reanalysis began 1979. And uh, as a climatologist, I prefer to make comparisons for the modern climate prior to about the year 2000. Uh, I, ideally, uh, in many cases, it's helpful to, to compare against the past century or at least the past uh, three decades or five decades. But it's after, by the late 1990s, early 2000s, that's when the major changes were beginning to occur in the Arctic and uh, certainly elsewhere in the Northern hemisphere. And so when you go to climate reanalyzer and look at the daily temperature anomalies, I chose the climatology to be 1979, 2000 because um, that period, that comparison period does not include some of the more drastic changes that have occurred in the past 20 years. It emphasizes the, on a given day, the patterns that we see in terms of uh, contrasting temperatures. It's accentuated a little bit by focusing on the earlier period in reanalysis for the comparison.
0: Are you planning on updating that or or shifting the comparison timeframe, or do you want to keep it 79 to 2000, because, and I talked about this with, with uh, Cassie Rose from the Maine Climate Council, this is the very first time such drastic changes have happened in the global environment due to human-caused mm. actions. So are you, are you, maybe you don't have an answer to this, are you intent on keeping it there so that we can really see what we've done, for lack of a better word, or will you readjust as you know, another decade goes by and shift the time frame?
1: Ideally, I'll, I'll add the option for the user to change the baseline as they want, because following up on what I, uh, what I mentioned a, um, a few moments ago was depending on on the topic of study or the particular system, we might choose one climate baseline over another. And uh, I think it is very helpful to have, or certainly would be, to have the option of looking at, for example, the 1981 to 2010 climate normal, and now the recent 1991 to 2020 climate normal. That's in the works. It's a matter of just carving out the time to have those maps produced as well to modify the script. But for that particular interface, I also like to, I'll probably keep the default as 1979, 2000, because that has been on the site using that time period for the anomalies since 2013 and keeps things consistent. Uh, but of course, on the reanalysis pages, if you uh, want to make a map showing the difference between 2010 and 2020 or 2021, uh, you can make that comparison for any range of years on those those three monthly reanalysis pages. The user can select the variable, and in particular on the map interface, they can select the year, the month, the season, uh, and then the range of years that you might want to average across. So that that tool you can use whatever climate baseline to produce these uh, anomaly maps.
0: I mean, it's a wormhole. Every time I go on your site, Sean, I'm, I lose Whoa. some chunk of my day in all the good ways. Are you still able to do your other research? Are you still a- doing research on kind of the the deep time and the large scale time? I mean, I know that climate reanalyzer is a chunk of time, but I also know it's not the only thing you do.
1: Uh, I've recently taken a joint position between the Climate Change Institute and Cooperative Extension. And in this role, there's a, a strong emphasis on my duties as a state climatologist. And so I'm focusing mostly on climate aspects as, as they impact Maine's climate. And I'll, I'm continuing to do research on North, uh, North Atlantic climate variability, Arctic climate teleconnections, and uh, But I also, I have other projects as well. For instance, um, one of the NSF funded projects that I'm on, and this is with Paul Mavsky, Director Institute. It's a project investigating Andean uh, climate in the central Andes. There's an ice coring component and a a weather observation component with uh, collaborators. And my component is to, um, it's an examination of reanalysis models and how they perform in reproducing the climate of that region. And then also um, assisting with um, uh, supplying data in conjunction with the ice core studies. And in, in the recent years, I've been on a number of different research projects, and um, some of which I may have a heavy involvement, others in which I, I help supply climate data, either from the reanalysis models or models are used to project into the future. So I, I do many different things. I, uh, I would say most recently, I, in relation to working with extension, I've been working a lot with colleagues who are connected with the agricultural uh, community. And I'm working on providing climate and weather decision tools for agriculture, in particular Maine and agriculture. And so I've been involved in a couple of studies that relate to how climate changes in Maine are impacting agriculture And what are the needs of the agricultural community? What data products can we supply? And um, how can we contribute to planning efforts and and adaptation?
0: So this uh, very broad overview of the projects you're working on is a perfect segue into what longtime listeners are going to be tired of me talking about. And that's the Warming Sea Project. And I think it should be, I hope, obvious to anybody who's been listening Why it was so important to me that you spoke with Lucas Richmond, who was the composer of the piece. You guys had a really remarkable conversation, actually. Miranda and I last week just listened. We went through all the footage, all, I think it was 14 hours total of all the different interviews. And it was amazing, number one, to relive all of that, but number two, to realize how much information got packed into Lucas's head by all the different experts and we haven't even gotten to the school visit videos yet where, you know, you, you were part of that with us. That was an unusual ask, I think, for, for me to put out to different scientists. Hey, could you meet with this composer who has no real science background and explain your work? And um, <laughs> you were far and away, uh, along with all the rest of the folks, actually really game to have this conversation. So first of all, thank you for that. But secondly, I'm, I'm wondering, how did that work for you to talk to someone you really had to start at this basic level to catch Lucas up and then you guys got into it you were you were hovered over your laptop and you were showing him stuff it was really cool
1: well I I think it was a wonderful experience I really enjoyed the um, interactions with Lucas that we've had so far I mean on several occasions now and I I think is an absolutely amazing project and I I look forward to seeing the, the symphony perform it. And, and I, I really enjoyed the conversa- that initial conversation with, with Lucas. Uh, as you can probably tell, I'm the type of person who will go off on different tangents and get into the weeds. And uh, my wife tells me that I'm on a country road and um, sometimes she needs to push me onto the four-line highway and make sure I stay focused. Uh, and actually, I, although that's um, one challenge I've had as a researcher is, I'm interested in so many different things. I really have to force myself to be disciplined. And when it comes down to it, I have deadlines, responsibilities, and I have to focus on projects and get them done. So when I talk with someone and and the conversation can be open-ended and we can explore different things, I I love doing that. And uh, you could talk about climate and the environment and many other things, all kind of in one large discussion for many hours. And so that I, I think with, with Lucas, he had so many different questions. And uh, so I think we were both very willing to just go down different paths and see where they took us.
0: That's true, actually. I hadn't thought about the variety of ways that, and his approach and his angle would match someone who wanted to talk about all these different things. Have you had any other, what I would call unusual experiences talking about your science to people for whom it wasn't an obvious audience?
1: Honestly, I I don't think so. Um, I've given many public talks, talks to public audiences and overwhelmingly uh, they've been positive, very positive experiences. And uh, I mean, granted in the last couple of years, it's been mostly virtual presentations, but uh, the in-person presentations, I I really enjoy them. Uh, And I would say just about every single one, people come up afterwards, to to talk more about specific questions and on a couple of occasions, I gave maybe a 45 minute talk and I ended up afterwards, say for, for another two hours, answering questions with say two or three people and including people who have come up to me after the talk and said, you know, I'm not so sure about climate change and, but I really appreciate your talk and you've given me a lot to think about. And uh, that's happened on um, a handful of occasions. And then they they come up and they ask more more questions. When I give a a presentation to a public audience explaining the changes in Maine's climate, I try to show them the historical record, stick to the the data, uh, give them an understanding for why we, or or how we collect the data, how the data are collected, why we, or, or how we know about the historical changes. And I also like to bring in, historical information, uh, including um, some of the history, the, historic, the historical photographs of Penobscot Bay being frozen over, news articles um, relating how uh, people could walk across the bay, the uh or the, um, in 1918, February 1918, uh, Captain Albert Gray of uh, Brooksville, I think, uh, drove a Ford Pathfinder, um, to Belfast and back, I think five times. And there's a photograph of, of that Ford Pathfinder with a sledge hooked up to the back laden with, with supplies. And, and those trips were made because that was a particularly severe um, season for, for ice. Uh, one of the largest freezeovers of Penobscot Bay. Um, and the supplies were typically delivered to, to the Western portion of the good around Castine and so on by ship. And in that season, I think it was by early February, the, the ship, um, uh, ships could not get into the port and the community needed supplies. And, um, and so, uh, the decision was made, well, we need to go to Belfast and, uh, they, they measured the ice along the way. And I, uh, as I recall, uh, I, double check this from the, uh, from the story. It was published in the Bangor Daily uh, in February of 2018. Um, uh, as I recall, sea ice thicknesses of five inches were found along the way because uh, they were concerned um, to make, I think it's about a six mile trek across. The yeah, valley. it would
0: not be, <laughs> it's not trivial to go in the hard ice hard. for that
1: long. Yeah. But, but then after finding the ice was plenty thick and, and uh, I think there were five trips made overall but anyway including information like that and there are other there are several other years uh, in the early 1900s in which the bay froze over and on the western side of the bay uh ice had extended down even to camden and rockland and um and then i I, some of this information is anecdotal others uh, other information comes from newspaper clippings and it's in their photographs showing the conditions of Belfast Harbor. And, and so I, I like to draw that in and then show the time series, the temperature time series. And for each one of the big dips in temperature in the early 1900s, you can find historical information about, about that about that year the bay froze over. And so when the data line up with the anecdotal information and the photographs and the newspaper articles, I think that's very powerful because it, it helps it, it helps people to to visualize and to to see. Yes, that that's how it actually was, and there are still people alive today who, at the very least, remember stories from their grandparents or or, or the parents relating some of that past climate history in Maine. But overall, I found public audiences are quite receptive, and I I tried to present the data and uh, discuss the impacts, and and then all depends on if I've been invited to give a talk on climate impact specifically versus uh, provide an overview of Maine's climate, go through the historical record, and then uh, just give people the, the broad overview. But I, overall, these have been very positive experiences.
0: Do you think people need less convincing based on how things have been the last couple of years, or do you think it's still a fair amount of people who question the fact of climate change
1: i think less convincing is is needed we're seeing it more and more yeah and so at least in my experience in giving these talks the audience is receptive i mean in yeah, part of that could be the people who would attend a climate talk would be mostly already engaged in that issue however having spoken with people especially after the talk and have told me They've, they've said, thank you. You've really given me a lot to think about. And I appreciate the way that you've laid this out. And one thing I try to do is um, provide the information and then it's up to the person. If they are receptive to that information, they can, that, that can, be used for the, they can then determine for themselves. I like to provide people with the, with the information and, um, and hope that they can then use that to make an informed decision.
0: Okay, one last question. Are those talks indicative of what you do as the main state climatologist? And then an additional question with that is, what are your other roles as the main state climatologist? Well, the overall term
1: for what I do is provide climate services, and so that includes providing data, developing data products, and also to help facilitate decision making and Uh, So I'm a resource for main stakeholders on issues of climate and and also weather. In that overall field of climate services, I do a number of different things. So in terms of I might, some stakeholders send me an email and say, I'm looking for this type of data set. Can you help me out? And so I'll help provide the data and sometimes help process the data. And other times uh, someone is, is searching for a specific interpretation or would like guidance on an environmental impact issue, or in terms of agriculture uh, projects that I'm involved in, we work with um, the agriculture community to find out how, what data products they might need, what challenges they face in terms of adapting to, say, for example, extreme precipitation and um, drought is, is certainly a major issue, especially after last year. And uh, I'm serving on the scientific and technical subcommittee of the Maine Climate Council. And um, so I played a role in developing the uh, assessment report that the STS published, including the update report that, that was released in early December. And I give presentations to school groups. And uh, sometimes I'm asked to focus on, on uh, how weather works. Other times I'm asked to give an overview of climate. And I've also been asked, uh, could you present to the class climate reanalyzer? Show us how to use it. And, and, and then, then, of course, there's the climate research that I do as well and advising graduate students and sometimes under, undergraduate students as well. A number of different things.
0: This has been a really great conversation. And I, I think if I don't stop now, you and I will go on for hours and hours because, well, I just, first of all, I really like talking to you, but there's just a whole lot. Of additional information we could get in the weeds with, but um, I think I would probably spare both of us and our time and our schedule from that. (laughs) This has been really great. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate the work that you do. I think it is pretty clear to anybody who talks to you for three seconds or longer that you love trying to figure this stuff out and that you really want other people to try to understand it as much as possible.
1: Yes, it's, um, I really enjoy this area of research and I, I, as we all are, we're we're concerned about the implications for what's happening uh, now for how the Maine landscape will change and how natural resources will be impacted by the changing climate. But I'm also very encouraged by the forward momentum on facing this issue, uh, especially here in Maine uh, with with the Climate Council and I figured I would mention that because as a climate scientist on the one hand I'm fascinated by the climate system how uh, the how naturals uh, excuse me how it operates through time naturally and how humans are impacting it and what may lie ahead in in the future so as a scientist that's one way I I look at understanding the system but obviously there's there's also as a person the, uh, the emotional response and and certainly hoping that we can come together on on a very large scale and address this major challenge that lies ahead of humanity.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad that you mentioned all that Maine is doing. I think this is, um, you know, you mentioned you've done all your academic professional work at the University of Maine and the Climate Change Institute. And while you and I have had lots of conversations about how great it is to live in Maine and how lucky we are, I, I also would hazard a guess that one of the reasons that you've done all that work here is because it is one of the world leaders, if not the world leader in climate change research. So why on earth would you go anywhere else is, is one thought. But also, you know, Maine I, I, is the first state in the country that has a climate action plan. You know, this is yes. one of those cases where DERAGO truly does spell out what we're doing. So thank you for reminding me of that.
1: Yes, it's, it's remarkable and it's wonderful to be a part of.
0: I know how hard it can be to grab people's time. So I'm always grateful. So thank you so much. welcome. Thanks for listening to the Maine Science Podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is recorded at Discovery Studios, Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. It is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The Discover Main theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.